Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So the Apostle John here makes a connection. This is important. I just wanted you to see this connection in verse 1. Between every spirit and prophets. In other words, there are prophets or people proclaiming messages that are being influenced by either the spirit of God or a false spirit. And so what John is saying is the test as to whether or not an evil spirit is influencing a message is what does that spirit confess about the person of Jesus? Does that spirit believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh? Fully God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the eternal son who became a man and took on the form of a man, lived a sinless life and those types of things. So what he's saying is the subjective is measured by the objective. In other words, there's subjective experiences we have and the way we determine whether or not that's God or not. And the way this, I believe, will answer this question is when we listen to music, the way we are influenced by spirits, now whether you want to say that spirit is outside, you know, a mile away or it's on you or in you, I'm not going to unpack that right now. What I do want you to understand is though every message is being proclaimed forth or influenced by a spirit. And so John's saying you need to test those spirits. Now, the way you test the spirit is you test the message, right? right? He says false prophets have gone out. And the way I test if test spirits are I test the message of what that spirit says about Jesus. So the way that applies to music is the music we're listening to, is it confessing the truth about Jesus? And if it's not, if it's denying that, John says it's not the spirit of God, and it's actually a demonic spirit that is proclaiming or influencing forth from that person to you through song could be through a word it could be through other means but it's either you know it could be a sermon it could be a song it could be just speaking back and forth between people and so that's a great question and I want to say this that a spirit can't just like come and take control of you that's not the way it works the only way that a demon has influence over you is you believe it's lie and you come into agreement with it. Jesus says, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. I'll give you a passage, John chapter 8. Jesus unpacks in detail the way the enemy works. And he says, Satan is a liar. He's a liar. And so one of the things he does is he lies to people. And when I come into agreement with a lie, I've now given him influence. So if I'm listening to music that is anti-Christ, there's, there's literally, you know, demonic spirits that are energizing that music. And if I'm singing it over me, that's why Paul says in, in Ephesians f- uh, 5 that the, one of the ways we get filled with the Spirit is singing, making melody in our heart to the Lord. And so I actually get filled with the Holy Spirit by coming into agreement with what the Holy Spirit has inspired in the Word about God and singing it back to Him. And in the same way, that's the way the enemy would want to influence, but by God's grace, I trust that none of you are going to do that. When God convicts you of the music you're listening to, you're going to repent and renounce that stuff and say, God, forgive me, cleanse me, and I want to only be yielded to the Holy Spirit, who loves to exalt Jesus as the God-man, died on a cross, rose from the dead, is coming again. So hopefully that answers that question. Ben? Next Next question? Yeah. Okay. Right, I believe I had a card that was handed to me. There we go. All right. Hallelujah. This is so good. This was another great question that we had. It's related to um, an experience that we regularly partake of here at Communitas, which is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And the question that this person asked was, uh, how do I explain uh, 
each view that's within the Word of God on the concept of spirit baptism. Uh, what does communitas believe about it? And I've even heard some people wondering if tongues is for today. These are all really, really great questions, and so we want to be able to give some some pretty succinct answers for this. Um, I'd like you to have uh, have you guys just come with me in your Bibles, if you would, please, to... Oh, I'm sorry about that, Clint. Um, if we could go to 1 Corinthians, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'd like us to look very carefully here at the seventh verse. In it, Paul writes, or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you didn't catch that first part, we're going to the seventh verse. And in it, Paul writes to the church in Corinth, he says, so that you come short, what would it mean to come short or fall short? Understand what that means? You come short in no gift. How many gifts? None. Some of them? None. No gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is the revelation of Jesus? What is the revelation? Do you know what it is? Well, First Peter chapter 1 explains what the revelation of Jesus is. He identifies it as the second coming of Christ. So what Paul is saying right here in this verse is, is that we as the church do not lack any spiritual gift until the time of Christ's second coming. Now, that's different from some of the things that you normally hear in churches today. Some churches speak and act and behave as though the spiritual gifts were withheld from the church at a certain time, uh, somewhere in church history, at the close of the apostolic generation, and that since that time, as God has now started his church with a kind of an, an intense dose of supernatural power, that since that time, that the spiritual gifts have been withheld or withdrawn. And a lot of times, many of these same people will argue that, that uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, that it says that when the perfect comes, that that which is imperfect passes away. And it talks about how um, the, the Bible is, the, is they, they talk about it this way. They say that the Bible is that which is perfect. So therefore, we don't need the gifts anymore. Now, that's a very un unfortunate interpretation of the scriptures, particularly because right at the outset of that very same book, Paul says that we do not lack any spiritual gift until the, the, the time of Christ's second coming. And so um, we, we understand and practice here at Communitas, I personally and, and all of those that are in leadership here, Underneath of Paul, we practice the gifts of the Spirit, and all of us have had opportunities, I would say, all of us, at various times to experience some very powerful encounters with the person of the Holy Spirit. And um, I've seen physical healings that have taken place. I have personally you know, laid hands on people and watched miracles, sickness that gets lifted, cancer, broken bones that are healed unnaturally quickly, an old woman comes to mind who in a couple weeks, her wrists, both wrists were broken, they were healed. I mean, just, just things like that that are impossible, okay? And they, they demand an explanation. And uh, we believe that the explanation to those things is simply that the Holy Spirit still heals today. He still stretches forth his, Jesus still stretches forth his hand and heals people. I myself have received physical healing. We also believe that in the gift of prophecy, I've experienced some extremely powerful encounters 
with God in visions and uh, in prophecies, ways that God communicated, saying to me, Ben, tomorrow this is going to happen, and this is going to be this person that's going to do this, and, and it just happens exactly as God said it was going to happen. The reason that I'm living in the house that I'm living in right now is because God told me you're going to move to this house, and he gave us a number of signs. It was just a, a wild thing. But the point is, is that we all have been, come to experience these things personally. And, um, and so I want to say a little bit about tongues right now, that uh, this, the, the, the tongue speaking, really, uh, we, we look back in church history and we don't see a lot of that gift manifesting. Unfortunately, a lot of the gifts have not manifested much in church history. Um, but particularly, if we go back about a century to uh, the start of what we call the Pentecostal movement, there was a group of people that were crying out together and pressing in together um, at a college, a college campus, and they were asking for this gift of tongues, and there was a woman that spoke in tongues, and it was the first time that, on record that we know of that a person spoke in tongues in church history since the apostolic generation. And since that time, that move of the Spirit has eclipsed all denominations. It has is, it is hopped over every denominal, denominational line. It has um, been something that Catholics have experienced, Lutherans have experienced, and it's a very, very powerful um, gift that God has given to each one of us personally. And it's often the first one because of the way that it edifies our own spirits. Um, Jude, who is the who is normally considered to be the blood brother of Jesus, said that we pray in the Spirit, building ourselves up in our most holy faith. And so there's a correlation between having a strong faith in the scriptures and speaking in tongues. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than any of you. And so he, he understood that he was building his own spirit up in faith as he was speaking in tongues. And so there's a devotional use to this language that we come before the Lord and we just, just begin to very naturally pour out this heavenly language that God has given to us. Again, it is a gift. And then as we do that, our faith gets built up and strengthened in the things that we have believed. And so it's a very, very important thing for us to be able to um, understand that, that, that Satan's not going to come and jump in there and give you a counterfeit gift as long as you're in dialogue with Heavenly Father. Would you agree that that's true? Yeah. What does it say in Luke 11? Which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will receive a stone, right? The implication being that if you ask for the Holy Spirit, that you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And so I would just encourage you, whoever asks this question, and if you are one of the people that might be asking these, this question in your heart, is just to go before the Lord in your own personal time and ask him, Father, I would like to receive the gift of tongues. I understand that that's supposed to be for the building up of my faith. And so I want to have a strong faith. I invite you to go ahead and do that. So. Thank you, Ben. Um, and I, and I want to piggyback on that, just that I think oftentimes there's a fear of, do I take the, the Holy Spirit of the word? And I want to encourage you that the Holy Spirit inspired it. So they're always going to be in agreement. And, uh, and believing in prophecy today does not believe, does not mean we do not believe in the sufficiency of scripture, um, but that everything we have and need for life and godliness is, is in this. And the Holy Spirit is the one who needs to interpret it. And uh, we need the Holy Spirit to give us insight. And so don't be afraid. Trust the Lord. I understand that there's fear of, you know, the extreme and the weird and how do I, how do I stay in bounds? And I just want to exhort you with what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2, right after what Ben said, is that your faith is not in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. And so ultimately we're, we're staying in the scriptures. We're staying in godly community and exercising those gifts for the building up of the church. So the next question, Paul McKenzie. 
Amen. Well, bless you all. So I'm going to turn two of these into one because they're super similar, and I think it's a compound issue. So the first question is, how do I know that God loves me when I fail? And it says, how do I get rid of feeling guilty and shameful even though I know I am clean? So I think it's a one question with two parts. Um, the first scripture that comes to mind is just Romans, um, Romans 5. So Paul just says that, you know, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. And he says, um, while we were yet sinners, you know, God still loved us. So it's maybe a simple answer to your question, um, but really it's profound. And it's, the reality is, is that you can't earn anything. I mean, it's, it's really that simple that when you fail, it does nothing to change Jesus' heart. He says, my love is settled for you. Um, now, I, I will say this, though. This is something that really brought me freedom in this area is that your salvation is free, but the maintenance of it will cost you everything. So what I mean by that is that, yeah, I'm saved, but you know the Bible also says that you know you love me when you obey my commandments. So that sometimes creates a dichotic scenario in our minds and in our hearts. But the reality is, is that Jesus paid the price for your salvation, and you didn't do anything to deserve it. And, and that's where we just need to say yes to Jesus. And that comes through revelation. And that's why I think what Clinton and Ben were talking about with the Holy Spirit, that's why Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit. And he said to the disciples in John 16 that it's good that I leave and go be with the Father because I'm going to send you the Comforter. And he knows the mind of Christ. He knows me. That's Corinthians 2. It says, you know, for the Spirit searches the deep things of God and he makes them known. And there's no way in your rational mind in a performance-oriented community and society that pays you for performing um, that you're going to comprehend the love of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. So that's why we ask all the time for the Holy Spirit. Um, as far as part two, getting rid of guilt and shame, even though I know I'm clean, I think that also ties really heavily into what Clint was talking about with question one, in that there are lies and there's truth. And we are given the choice to believe it. And this is critical to what we as the saints expose ourselves to. If we're exposing ourselves to the fascination of media, to television, to music, to unhealthy relationships that feed us with lies, that you're not good enough, that you have to look a certain way, that you have to say a certain thing, whatever, that's going to make it really hard to resist lies. But if you feed yourself with the Word of God, if you seek the truth of the Holy Spirit, if you seek Jesus, um, it's going to make it a lot easier in that time of temptation. If you surround yourself with community, it's going to make it easier to resist that because at the end of the day, that's Satan feeding your mind with the reality, with a lie. And Jesus doesn't say that about you. He says, I'm ravished by you. you I'm lovesick for you. You're my bride. You're my fair one. Um, but that, that takes a commitment. That takes a healthy prayer life. That takes just saturating your life with the Bible, with community, with life and godliness. Um, and it's a process. 
Amen. I think that's why Paul says in Ephesians 3 to pray <laughs> that we know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. But until we come into a greater experience, we lay hold of it by faith. Everything in the kingdom is received by faith in the word of God. It doesn't change. God do, God's love for you doesn't change. And his love is simply this. Jesus' death on the cross for you. No greater love have you known. So when your emotions go, I don't know if I'm loved, we look back like we did in the Lord's Supper. We, we look into the Gospels and we say, this is what love looks like. This is how love was demonstrated. Love is not a romantic idea like our culture presents it. Love is the God-man dying in your place, sacrificing himself for your good, not meaning you won't have trials, not meaning you won't feel. It doesn't mean you'll feel it all the time. Love is not primarily a feeling. And so that's really good, Paul. And I think we want to pray, Holy Spirit, I want to experience more of God's love. I want to grow in that. And it's, it is a greater experience that will go on forever. There's a doctrine about God called the doctrine of incomprehensibility. It means we will never exhaust not even one attribute of God for eternity. You cannot exhaust revelation of the love of God forever. You will be going on in a revelation of God's love. You'll be going on in a revelation of God's mercy. You'll be going on in a revelation of God's holiness forever. So even though we know it's true, we go, God, this is true. I believe it. And the truth sets me free. We still have an incremental experience. So. Amen. Well, and I'll just say this much. I still struggle with it. I mean, it's probably that that may surprise some of you or maybe hopefully it doesn't. But I'm no different than you guys. Every day, I mean, I have to go home and I have to, you know, pray, read the scriptures. I find so much value in that and just saying, like, Jesus, thank you for your love. Help me experience it more. Pray the apostolic prayers, like Clint said, Ephesians 3, that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. I just, Jesus, help me know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Give me grace to experience the depth, the height, the length, and the width of your love. And he'll, he'll do it. I mean, he, he longs to bring you into an equally yoked relationship with him, and that's, that's what he wants to do. Amen. Next question I have, which is an amazing message. Thanks. Um, how far is too far physically in a relationship? Now, that's an absolutely amazing question, um, and I just want to share personally where I stand in it, and you take it to the word. Um, as you know that as a Christian, our bodies are not our own. We belong to the Lord. And then in marriage, our bodies belong to our spouse. And so the question would be is, who am I allowing to be physical with me? Are they my spouse? And if they're not, they're somebody else's future spouse. So I would ask that to yourself is, who is it that I'm allowing touch me or vice versa? Um, because we're not our own. And then the verse that I have um, to encourage you as far as waiting for the Lord's timing of what he's leading you to do in a relationship um, is Song of Solomon's 8.4. It says, Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. And really what it comes down to is being in sync with the Holy Spirit, asking him what is it in a relationship between a guy and a girl or a man and a woman as God ordained marriage is what is it, Holy Spirit, do you want it for us? For Clint and I, we had prayed a lot about it and um, the Lord, we did kiss before marriage and we had felt like the Holy Spirit was okay with that and Kat will touch base a little bit more on that. Um, but it was a matter of what was arousing or awakening love before it, it reached the line of sin. And the other thing was is um, 
the word of God talks about in Matthew 5, 28, it says, don't even look with lust, otherwise you've committed adultery in your heart. And so if you're touching for wrong purposes to get something, normally touching or going physical, it's, it's to get something. It's to go further than just to kiss or just to touch. There's normally an end in mind. And so if it's not in the context of marriage, it could be dangerous. <laughs> it's sin. Um, and actually, we have mentors that shared an amazing analogy um, you can have a fire that has sparks and, and a dazzle and it can be warm and cozy in the fireplace, right? But that's sex and marriage. But then you can also have a fire that's that same coziness and sparks and fire and the, the nice beauty of fire outside of the fireplace. That could be really dangerous. <laughs> and so it's the matter of really asking the Lord, what's my motive in this? What's the heart issue? Um, do you want to add yeah, anything? And then Kat has something too. Yeah, I want to add one thing. Um, we're, we're living in a culture that either views, and this comes from Mark Driscoll, this isn't from me, um, sex as God. <laughs> we have a culture that worships sex. That was normal for pagans. That was an act of their spiritual you know, rituals. And so we're, we're in a very sex-saturated culture. A lot of people view sex as God. And then there's a whole group of people that view sex as gross, and, it, and, and, and neither of those two are true. Sex is actually a gift created by God for one man and one woman in marriage, and it's awesome. And I know that as Christians, sometimes we're told, no, 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 as far as outside of marriage, that it's like we almost have this wrong view of it. And I would encourage you to pray and ask the Lord, is my view of this in agreement with the word, or have I been hurt or wounded or those types of things? Because what can happen is our view of things can get skewed. And I know that, um, yeah, the devil did not create this. The devil now wants to take it out of God's will. That's what he does. He takes good things that God gave us as a gift and tries to get him used us out, out of God's will. And so I know that that's, those are two kind of extremes that we normally land on. So if you're single, bless you as you die to that until you're married. And, uh, and I know we, we were told, don't start the car unless you're going to go for a ride, I guess, or something. So that's another road. Hold on, cats first. So if you start, you know, kissing and it's leading to, yeah, then it's awakenings more. So. Yeah, that's actually a good segue into what I'm going to share about. Um, but I'm going to read a scripture, Romans 12. Probably all familiar with this one. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, holy, and pleasing will. Um, in, the, in this topic, in this area, I wanted to give an analogy when you're asking yourself how far is too far, the first thing you should ask is why am I asking that? Because where's your heart in that? If you're like paralleling with the fire, if you're asking how close can I get to the line, that's where the danger is. Um, when you're driving and you're on the road, you've got the lines leading you. Those lines are absolutely powerless to stop you. But they're absolutely essential to guide you. So it's important in a relationship that you have boundaries that you talk about those things that you know where you stand because you need those boundaries you need those things but they're absolutely powerless so if you have a list of 25 things you're not going to do if your heart is not right it doesn't matter if you tattoo them to your forehead you're going to you're going to cross everyone you can have 25 accountability partners 
and you'll find a way to go past every one of them to get what you want. So it starts first with being transformed by the renewing of your mind, coming past the, the pattern of this world and, and saying, you know, where's my heart in this? And what about the person I'm with? You don't kiss alone, so what about the person I'm with? <laughs> Romans, when you go down um, 12, still chapter 12, down to verse 10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor, 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 honor one, other, uh, one another above yourselves. It starts with your heart. Same with driving in a car. If you want to stay on the right side of the road, you're going to be thankful for those lines. But you'll cross them every time. That said, so what about, what if hand-holding? What if a little bit of kiss on the cheek? It might be okay in certain conditions. Same with driving. Going 65 miles per hour on a sunny day works. It's wonderful. But you put some snow, you put some rain, you put some slick grease or whatever, it changes the circumstances. My challenge to you is to know your conditions and be willing to adjust to them, just like when you're driving. Because one, you know, when you're um, tired, the conditions change. When you're bored, the conditions change. When your wedding is 10 months away, the conditions change. So it's knowing and being responsible. It's saying, before you get in this car, before you start, what, what are the conditions for today? You slow down when the conditions get bad on the road. Know yourself. Now, don't discover yourself by getting as close to the lines as you can, but know that if you struggle in your mind when you think of making out with someone, chances are it's not going to go well if you start kissing heavily with someone. Know yourself and know the conditions and adjust accordingly, just like when you drive. So to sum it up, would it be to say kiss responsibly, just like the way you drive responsibly. <laughs> know yourself, know the conditions. Amen. Yeah, thanks, Kat. It's really good. With um, with sin, just one thing that I want to help you guys out with that really helped change my life is um, I view sin according to like two basic conditions. Like I either choose sin or I choose Jesus. I mean, it really comes down to that for me. So really, it, it, I turned it in. This is my own paraphrase. I turned it into an idolatry issue. It's like, do I prefer sin more than Jesus or do I prefer Jesus more than sin? And... I guess, you know, at the end of the day, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. Like, that's what it comes down to. So one way that really helped me was get a revelation of the beauty of Jesus. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is worthy, and his, at his right hand, there are pleasures evermore, and, you know, he's perfect. So um, Jesus doesn't give us commandments to be mean and heavy taskmaster. He gives us commandments because he knows what's best for us. And I tell you, the joy of abstaining from sex till marriage, so supersedes giving into it, like in the fading pleasures of it, you know, before marriage. It, it's just, I abstained till I was married, and it's amazing because we connect, it's easy, we love each other, and it's just natural as opposed to the other way, which is garbage. Amen. And I want to ex- <laughs> I want to exhort you guys that it's your responsibility to be setting these boundaries and be communicating these. This is one of the first things I did with Angela. Um, before we even really officially started dating is just where I was at. I sought the Lord in the word and counsel. Wisdom's found the counsel of many. And you don't want to be making those boundary decisions in the in the midst of temptation. So bless you guys in that. Uh, next question, we'll take a couple more. Um, could you please explain the distinctives or what defines the prosperity gospel message and how it strays from the Bible references that are often quoted to support it? 
Great question. Let me say it again. This is a huge one, and this I'm really, really passionate about this one. Um, I want, I want, this might render a message in the future. Could you please explain the distinctives or what defines the prosperity gospel message, how it strays from the Bible, and the verses that are often quoted to support it? Here's where I would start is there are, there's a spectrum as it, as it relates to the prosperity gospel. There are more extreme and less extreme versions of this. Um, I want to start by saying the reason it strays from the verses that support it is because the verses that support it are not the entire counsel of God as it relates to money. So what happens is anytime you build a doctrine on only a few verses in the Bible that are out of context generally, and they're not held within the greater context of the scriptures, you get into a ditch. And the prosperity gospel is a ditch. And I want to, I want to say maybe what I, I may think you're asking, give a couple verses and then we're going to move on. And this will be a question we'll come back to first. Why don't you define the prosperity gospel? I'm going to right now, Paul. Thanks. First Timothy six. I'm going to define it right in the word right here. Uh, Verse three through five, Paul's talking about unwholesome teachers, false teaching. And he says this, these are men of corrupt minds. First Timothy six, five. If you have a Bible and you want to turn, These men of corrupt minds are destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of financial gain. Okay, I think the easiest way to define the prosperity gospel is to say, if you're godly, it equals material blessing or financial blessing. Or the prosperity gospel is often presented as come to Jesus because he wants to make you rich and wealthy and happy and it's all about you. So there's kind of two sides of that coin. Either godliness equals guaranteed wealth, which is totally unbiblical and we can unpack it with the life of Jesus and Paul really easily. Or the message that says, come to Jesus for money. Now, brother, if you're coming to Jesus for money, that's called idolatry. You're actually worshiping money, not Jesus. The treasure of the gospel is that Jesus is now my God, that I find my satisfaction in him. And that does not minimize the reality of him being a provider, but it, but it also holds in context the other tension that this is a life marked with suffering. And that we don't say you're not in faith if you don't have this, this, and this. And I don't name things and claim things. I don't, I don't, I don't operate what I call Pentecostal witchcraft. I don't, I don't, I don't control things by speaking things. Now, there's, there's a reality to speaking forth the word of God. But the question I have often is the things that are presented as come to Jesus and get this, I would say to those people, you don't need to be regenerate or born again to desire those things. So what you're actually doing is using Jesus to get to gratify your flesh. And it's dangerous. And Jesus says, it's dan- riches are dangerous. They're deceitful. Don't trust them. Don't love them. So those are fine. We need, obviously, money to interact. But the, the danger is when that's kind of the heart of the gospel. Ultimately, the greatest thing offered to me in the gospel is not forgiveness of sins. It's not, you know, the blessing of being in the body and seeing relationships restored and seeing provision. It's ultimately, I get Jesus. I get God. I get a relationship with God. In other words, if my wife and I get in a fight, this is the cross, right? The cross is the forgiveness of sins. I don't want to minimize that. That's an awesome aspect of the gospel. Healing is an awesome aspect of the gospel, but if my wife and I get in a fight and I get forgiven, 
Why am I excited about forgiveness? Because of forgiveness sake? No. I'm excited about forgiveness is because there's restored relationship with my wife who I love. The reason forgiveness of sin is so awesome in the gospel is because I get fellowship with God. And I think the easiest way to discern the prosperity gospel is, is money being presented as the treasure, because Jesus says don't store up treasure here, but that is in heaven. So the prosperity gospel is an enemy of the cross. It's an enemy of the biblical gospel, and this country is filled with it. I'll tell you the extreme version of it, the kind that really makes me mad, that makes me want to shake these guys. I want to shake them. I want If I was Kevin McClure, I'd want to punch him probably. No, <laughs> Kevin McClure is so funny. Sorry, Paul. Here's the extreme. It's guys who are, are living in extravagant luxury. They're flying their private jet to Africa. They're gathering massive amounts of poor people and telling them, if you give me your money, I'm going to guarantee that God's going to prosper your life. Then they gather that money. They get back in their jet. They fly back to the United States, and they live in luxury. Beloved, that is wicked. That is wicked beyond measure. That is so offensive to Jesus. Jesus was rich and he became poor. Jesus was rich and he became poor. And what we have is we have the richest nation in the world propagating a message that is taking money from the poorest of the poor and guaranteeing them things that are not in the scriptures and taking advantage of them. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to freak out about this someday. I'm going to write a book about it. I'm s- and I've been around the extremes and there's lesser and lesser. And Now, I, I'm not minimizing the biblical truths that we can trust God for things, but ultimately it's him that I want. It's him. So that's a short answer. Okay. Next. Um, go ahead. You know, one of the things that really illustrates um, very clearly how perverted all of this has become, I heard a guy named Reverend Sam Pascoe do a short version of the history of Christianity, and he summed it up like this, that Christianity began in Palestine as a spirituality. It moved from Palestine to Greece, and it became a philosophy. It moved from Greece to Rome, and it became an institution. You can see that it's degrading, right? It's not getting so good. It gets, continues to get worse because it moves to Rome, to Europe. It becomes a culture, just a cultural idea. And then it moves from, from, uh, from Europe, rather. It moves from Europe to America, and it becomes an enterprise. An enterprise, of course, is a business, right? The church isn't supposed to be a business. It's supposed to be a body. When a body becomes a business, we call that prostitution. And this is this is this is an extremely perverted version of what's going on right now. It's it's a it's it's sick. I believe it's a it's a it's an ideology that's energized by demons. And I believe that the, the Holy Spirit, that Jesus Christ is going to have something to say about this when He returns. This is going to be a, an issue that He's going to confront the Western Church on and call us to account. And so I really believe if you're kind of thinking about this. Please, I would, I would just urge you, if you value the discernment of the eyes of your heart at all, steer clear of any teaching that promotes prosperity and mammon as the very focus of the gospel because you're going to preserve your soul in the knowledge of the truth. Amen. I want to read one more verse. This is a big topic, and then uh, I think we're maybe, we'll maybe take one more, and then we'll close, and there'll be some ministry time. This is a terrifying scripture in the book of James. <laughs> James says, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted 
and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. And he goes on to say that you're basically withholding money from laborers, and um, it's terrifying. Having money is not a sin. Wanting to keep it all is a sin. So just because you're blessed with riches does not mean you're in sin at all, but you need to be sober and not trust it. There's one more question uh, I'm going to give a one-sentence answer to. Someone said in 1 Corinthians 2, Paul, or 1 Corinthians 11, Paul talks about women covering their heads for the sake of the angels. Great question. What does this mean? Do our prayers affect the angels when our heads are covered? I believe the context shows that Paul's talking about authority and the head covering is a sign of authority and being under Christ and being submitted to those who we need to be submitted to actually helps us. And I'm not going to get into the angels part, whether that's, that's another topic for another day, but I believe it's speaking of authority and James 4 says we submit to God, and then we resist the devil and he flees. So I think that's reigning authority. Now let's take like two questions. Is there anyone in the crowd that's like, I have a question that's burning and I need to ask it? Because we had about five minutes and then we'll wrap wrap this. Has anybody got a question they want to ask? Step out and be bold. Any marital questions? Anything like oh, that? Oh, marital. Whoa. Questions about marriage? What do we got here? Does anybody, does anybody have one? Anybody have a question? Yes, Krista. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, how do you deal with that? How do you desire marriage and like talk it up in church all the time and yet being single is also good? That's awesome. Um, Jesus talks about it in Matthew 19. <clears throat> he talks about, um, obviously Jesus and Paul were single. Um, so two, <laughs> pretty pretty much two guys we want to emulate, right? Um <laughs> That's an awesome question, and I think God has called people to both, and I think if you have a calling for celibacy, you'll know that, and Jesus affirms that as being awesome and good, and at the same time, I think we see the biblical authors affirming um, the gospel being presented uh, through marriage as well, and so I think it's an issue of calling, and I think what Paul's saying there is, is he's not lacking out opportunity to become sanctified because he's not married, and actually it would have been probably really detrimental for his marriage had he been. And so the Lord had called him for that. Jeremiah was called for the same thing. Uh, there's others in scripture that were clearly called for celibacy and that was holy. And, and we want to bless that. I would say the majority uh, are not. And for those, I think that's maybe why you get a, a, a heavier end of, you know, he, he who has a wife, finds a wife, finds a good thing, you know, kind of teaching. So you have both of those. And I think um, they're both valid. Anything you want yeah, we had a question here. I won't go in too much depth because I think it does merit more of a pet, more of a message. But the question was, what is the view of women in ministry? So that's a, that's a deep one. Actually, hey, let me make a comment about this. This is a really good message. Literally, the best message I think I've ever heard on it was at Bethany Church two weeks ago, two or three weeks ago. Angela and I were there, and, and if you came in high egalitarian or high complementarian, you left convicted because you got the heart of God for both of these, and I, I, I don't think we have time to unpack. I don't know if you even know those two views and what those mean, um, but if I want to encourage you to get on BethanyTC.org. Awesome, awesome job. He deals with the five most controversial texts, and he just goes to the scripture in context, says, what does this mean? How do we understand this? And it's, I don't know if we want to unpack it, but it seems that there's a correlation between uh, well, I don't want to 
It's a lot because the value from God for women is high and awesome. And it's not an issue of comparison. And I think the home is the picture for the church when it comes to ministry. Amen. Yeah, and, and I think it's clear in the home that there's uh, a spiritual leadership and headship that is upon the men. And that's a headship that is like Jesus laying down your life. And so it's not a dominating, authoritative, oppressing. And I, my wife has called to ministry. And so we wrestled with this a lot of where we are at on this topic. And I want to encourage you, if you're getting into a relationship, to talk about how do you view, view gender roles in marriage? How do you view Because I don't think gender goes away when you come to Jesus. I, I don't think the distinctions of gender go away. Um, and I think both are equally expressing forth the image of God and important and valuable and awesome. And we want to celebrate feminism. We want to celebrate masculinity as, as far as the Bible defines it. And we want to seek to find how we can present the gospel. And we live in a culture that is going to violently oppose the, the scriptures in this area. And I want to encourage you to get in your Bible Ask God, what is your heart for this? How does, how, how do the different roles and callings relate to gender? Question. Femininity. Yes, we no, not feminism. We oppose. Yeah, feminine. Yeah, femininity. Yes, I did mean that. Fem, feminism is a is a major stronghold, and it's the result of oppression from men against women and the women's right. I mean, there's just this is a whole massive issue but Jesus loves women and he 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 appeared to them first I mean he went against cultural strongholds as it relates to gender and yet at the same time he he appointed 12 male apostles so take that in your context larger uh, oh, uh, BethanyTC.org, Bethany Church of the Twin Cities, Bethany Church in Bloomington. Pastor Matt Hedrick did a phenomenal, literally phenomenal job on this topic. Obviously, there's landmines everywhere. It's a very emotional issue. It's hard to enter in without bias. And, and so what we want to do is we want to come, and I, there's healing I need, and there's healing we all need as it relates to this topic, and we really just want to get God's heart so that we can honor him and his word. Great question. Any more questions? Wrap it up. Praise the Lord. This one kind of came in at the end, too. Um, I won't read the whole thing, but it basically, in in essence, dealt with the issue of homosexuality in the church. Um, So I'll just paraphrase it. Basically, how do we as Christians kind of handle this issue, Um, even when we see it kind of pervading into You're going to take the most controversial one right at the end, huh? Wow, Um, that's intense, man. You're so intense. Oh. And again, we, there's so little time to get into everything. I guess the way I would approach it, and kind of we actually talked about this recently as leaders, is that um, we don't want to lambast the person. It's a sin, but we treat homosexuality the same way we treat heterosexual sin. I mean, we're dealing with the sin, and um, ultimately we love on the person, but we uphold the truth. So, so that's really what it ends up coming down to is that we acknowledge that it is sin, but that Jesus is greater than the sin, and we, we trust in the redemption of, of the blood to, to cover the sin and deliver it. And Jesus died for all sin. I want to encourage right. you on this topic. This is a passionate thing for you. We're actually doing an outreach to the gay 90s, uh, June 15th, and to reach out to this community and to see people uh, delivered and set free. I just want to uh, make a specific distinction on the issue of homosexuality. Homosexual behavior is the sin. To have same-sex attraction 
is not a sin. Um, and so I just want to make that very clear. <laughs> just like we may have pulls or be attracted to the same sex, I mean to the opposite sex, being attracted to the op opposite sex isn't a sin. The, beha the behavior of sex out of marriage is a sin. Um, and so just as Clint was mentioning earlier, how gender does not go away when you become a Christian. Um, God's vision for man and woman to be joined together is the fullness of him. Yeah, and I, and I think if I can clarify some of what you're talking about, what we mean here is, is that temptation, would you say this way, that temptation is not, being, a, being tempted does not mean that, that I, I am automatically being assigned at that moment of temptation a sinner just simply because a tempting thought comes to my mind. You know, tempting thoughts can have several different sources. We know that there is the flesh, and we're called to die to the flesh, right? Romans 8, 13 says, if you mortify the deeds of the flesh, you'll live. In other words, if you don't, you won't. So that's a really serious issue. You have to put it to death. We also know that we, we're, we, we need to keep in mind that we have a foe, an enemy that's coming against us, that is assailing us with thoughts and ideas. How many of you have ever just been driving along one day and all of a sudden had a sinister thought that just came to your mind? You're like... What in the world was that? Where in the world? To, to think that God would look down on you in that moment of a demon hurling something like that at you and just say, well, this means now that you are guilty of, of everything that's behind that thought, that's, that's condemnation is what that is. And so we need to be careful of those things, and we need to understand that there's a difference between temptation and sin. And so we're not calling temptation sin. We're calling sin sin, and we're understanding that we're saying no to sin, right? Yeah. Hallelujah. Okay. Awesome. Let's bless Jesus and then we'll uh, bust out of here. Father, thank you for these questions. I know there's so much more in the Bible. I just pray that every person would be hungry to search out what you say in the Word of God and that uh, we just acknowledge that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable uh, for doctrine and correction and, and reproof, uh, that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank you for tonight and thank you for how you're moving in our hearts. Seal these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's what's going to go. If you want to get ministry, there'll be people at the altar. If you want to stay and pray with one another, you're free to do that. Otherwise, there's food upstairs and enjoy fellowship. We'll see you guys next week. And this may be influencing a series of teachings we do on these. Um, so thank you guys again for your questions. If you have more and you'd like to submit them, we'd love to get them, pray over them, and maybe do some, some articles as well. So God bless you guys.